Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. How do you deal with doubts? You know, when you're doubting the character of God, maybe you're doubting his goodness, doubting that God is real. You know, sometimes doubting that God is at work. You know, as we've gone through this last year, in 2020 and then into 2021, I, there were a lot of new experiences. You get, I think you guys had the same year I did. Um, and in every new experience, there's a new opportunity to figure out what it looks like to trust God. And when you're learning to trust God in new experiences, faith and doubt kind of travel alongside because every time there's a new experience, there's a new opportunity. What does it look like to trust God when a pandemic hits? When my family's divided over politics and there's, there's a lack of civility, a lack of communication, a lack of love, a lack of support. What does it look like to trust God when someone that I love has passed away or someone's going through, again, a, an illness or a difficult, what does it look like to trust God? Every time there's a new experience, there's an opportunity of faith, but there's also simultaneously right alongside it, there's doubt. How do you process your doubt? All of us will experience it, but how do you go through it? And if you don't go through it in a way that processes it in God's presence and with others, then doubt can have a real negative impact on your life. It can even cause you to believe the wrong things about God, about yourself, and about what he wants for you. And so Psalm 73, what we're doing is this series called Honest to God. The the focus of this is really to talk about prayer. What does it mean to pray? Well, it means to be honest, first of all, with God. Because many of us say, you know, prayer is difficult. And actually, somebody told me, I, I don't know, you're, you're probably here, the person that told me this, but they said there was this report that came out that, that when it comes to how we pray, we're really not honest with God. That we kind of tell God, this is what this report said, what we think he wants to hear. Which is kind of silly if you think about it. It's kind of like your kids. When your kids come to you and they start telling you stuff and you know it's not true and you're like, okay, buddy, listen, I love you. You're a good kid, but uh, I'm not buying what you're selling me. But this study was saying that when we come into God's presence, we're usually just telling him what we, th- we think he wants us to say instead of just kind of pouring out our heart. And when you get into the Psalms, you find there's a real honesty. There's a depth. There's a reality of what's going on in life. And it's not that emotions are driving people, but they're processing emotions and processing challenges in God's presence. And we have to, to be deep in God's presence. We have to learn to pray the Psalms to get into God's word and allow those words to become our words when we go through similar challenges. And that's what the Psalms are there for. And so Psalm 73, which we're gonna jump in today, is a prayer of this guy Asaph, who was a worship leader, and he's going through this experience of doubt. And we're gonna, as we go through this, it helps us to process our own doubts when we go through challenges in life. So anyway, that's the introduction. You guys with me, you ready for this? This is challenging. These are deep passages. So let's jump into it together. Psalm 73, as we discover how do we process doubt in God's presence. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel. Now God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For as I looked at them, they had no pangs until death. Their bodies, I love this, are fat and sleek. They're fat 
It's in the Bible. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind, and therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, uh, loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their tongues against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked at ease. They increase in riches. And then he starts to evaluate his life. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Now, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, how to process it, it seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And see, then I discerned their end. Truly, they set themselves on slippery places. When you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. But when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish, I was arrogant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Your right hand holds me. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that my, I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, let me pray for us. Hey, Father, as we um, gather together, I know you are with us. You long to speak to us. You long to show us compassion, to remind us of who you are. And so in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit, would you teach us? Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would you remind us of all truth? Would you show us the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus? That as we process this passage, Lord, it wouldn't be just intellect, but it would be emotion and spirit it would be mind, heart, and volition surrendered to you. Meet us here, Father, we'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Asaph has this truth that I'm sure you've heard. God is good. God is good. And he's gone to church. He's been at the Bible study. He's taking this idea in verse 1. God is good. And see, specifically, God is good to those who, impure, or who are pure in heart. He's heard it. Now it's being challenged. That as he's going out into the world, he's experiencing some cognitive dissonance, you might say. He's having these experiences that's causing him to question what he believes in his mind, his heart, what he's trusted in as a child, what he's grown up in, what they say in the church. 
God is good, and yet some experiences have come into his life, and because of these experiences, he's starting to question the goodness of God. How can God be good if? How can God continue to be good, and I'm continuing to live for him, and yet he doesn't seem to be with me? He's not coming through. This isn't working. Why am I trusting in you and I'm not getting what I think I deserve? He's wrestling with this idea. God is good to Israel. He's good to those impure in heart. But what do you do with all the suffering, the hardship, the division in the church, the brokenness of Christian leaders? What do you do when everything else around you is causing you to doubt the very thing that is the foundation of your life and that you've built your life upon? What do you do when you doubt? Doubt is going to come. And if we don't address doubt openly and honestly in the church, then what's going to happen is we're going to start isolating ourselves from one another, isolating ourselves from the truth, and not processing it in a way that draws us close to the Father. So let's jump back in this passage. He starts in verse 1, again, asking, presenting this statement that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But here's the problem. As for me, I almost stumbled meaning I almost fell. My steps had nearly slipped, for I saw something. I looked out in life, and I was envious of the arrogant, because, see, I saw that those that hated God, that cursed God, that wanted nothing to do with God, who were arrogant, and they didn't care, and they weren't held accountable, they were prospering. Their life was good, and I love that he uses twice, at least in the ESV, this word fat. These guys were fat, they were strong, they were ha happy, they were healthy. Their life looked like the life that I wanted. What good is it to trust God if you don't get a good life? He has this experience, and it's causing him to question what he believes. And actually, it says in, in verse 2 that my feet almost stumbled and I nearly slipped. This isn't simply someone walking down a street and tripping. Rather, the language that he's using is kind of technical. In the NIV, it says, I nearly lost my foothold. Now, I'm not a rock climber. I didn't grow up doing that. And at this age, I'm like, listen, I'm not going there. I know you guys got ropes and you got these belays and these anchors in the wall and all that kind of stuff. But I'm just not simply going there because it's dangerous. And I, and I see those that have got the courage and the strength to climb a sheer, sheer wall. You see that movie, uh, Free Solo, absolutely frightened me. Just simply to watch somebody. Have you seen it? Come on, guys. You didn't see that, did you? Oh, my gosh. Just my own nerves and watching somebody climb this sheer cliff and know that every single move is, is essentially death. And see, what he's saying is trusting in God in a broken world is like climbing Yosemite. Maybe not that severe but going up a sheer rock cliff. And I believe that God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart, but I'm facing life. And sometimes trusting in the goodness of God in a broken world, there's moments where you feel like, can I really continue to hold on to this? And he says, my foothold, it slipped. And that's a description of what happens when you're climbing a wall or you're walking along a ledge and you kind of feel the weight. You, you know that moment, the weight, your weight starts to tilt. And you start to feel out of balance, out of control. And you know on the other side is not just simply a sprained ankle. It could be death. He says, as I'm living life, I came to a place where I thought I was losing my trust in God. I was losing my faith. And let me say, this is a part of following Christ. 
Asaph is not a young believer. He's not a new believer. He's somebody who knows how to walk with God, and he's going through an experience that's causing him to question what he believes. We need to know that these experiences will happen. Because, see, if you don't believe it'll happen, what will happen when this doubt comes is you'll abandon the whole thing. You'll walk away. You'll think, well, doubt isn't a part of faith. But in fact, when you go to Matthew 28, go read this later on today. It's, it's crazy. You probably never even noticed this word was here. But Jesus rose from the dead. Pretty big day, right? And then he came back to his believers, and he was talking to his disciples and said, listen, I'm going to be with you always. I want you to go and proclaim the gospel and baptize into all the earth. And as he's standing there, it says in Matthew 28 that many worshiped, right? But you know what it also says? As he's standing there, and others doubted. Now, you would think doubt. Why would they doubt? I mean, he just rose from the dead. He's standing right there. He's teaching them. He's with them. But see, they'd never seen somebody rise from the dead. Dead people don't rise. And when you're in a situation where the categories of your faith and the categories of understanding are broken by your experiences, doubt is natural. Because what you're saying is, what does it look like to trust God when? When I get the diagnosis when I lose my job, when a loved one passes away. See, none of us really know what that experience is like, do we, until you're actually there. And in that new experience, you have to say, what does it look like to trust God now? And that's where doubt comes in. Because doubt says, is God going to still be here with me? What does it look like to know him, to be with him, to rely upon him when tragedy strikes? That's where Asaph is. And he's describing it like climbing a sheer cliff, and he felt as if his life was in the balance, that he had almost slipped. And so he goes on to explain exactly what it was that happened in verse 3. Here's what he saw. For I was envy of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now that word prosperity is actually this word in the Hebrew, shalom. And shalom is what the believer's after. In the Old Testament, shalom. In the New Testament, it's blessing. It's the blessing of God. And he's saying, I'm looking out at life. And here are these guys who are arrogant. They curse God. They make fun of God. They make fun of us. And they're fat. I mean, come on. They, you know, today we like sleek and strong. Back then, they like fat and fluffy. That was that because was, it was hard to be fat, wasn't it? You had to be strong. You had to be healthy. You had to have resources. And he's looking out at the world, and he's saying, I'm so skinny, and they're so fat. They're so happy. My life is a mess. He's looking at the temporal rewards that they have, and they're saying, God, what good is it to trust you if I do not have? And so notice in verse 4, what he's doing is he's describing this experience that he's gone through. And it's probably taken a lot of time for him to go through this. It wasn't one moment. It could have been a reflection of his life. But he says in verse 4, for they, meaning those that reject God, they've got no pain. They've got no pangs until death. I mean, they're living it. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. I mean, they're not overburdened like the rest of mankind. And they have pride as a necklace, and they don't care. Violence covers them. They wear it proudly. Their eyes... <laughs> Swell out through fatness. <laughs> he loves this idea. They are just fat, fat. <laughs> Their hearts overthrow with follies. They scoff 
I mean, they speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They don't care what others think. They set their mouths against the heavens. They curse God. Their tongues strut through the earth. And therefore, his, his people turn back to them and they find no fault. So the people you respect, they don't question them. They get away with anything. They can do anything. They can say anything. They act however they want. Nobody calls them out. Nobody confronts them. And verse 11, and they mock God. They say, how can God know? Come on. Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and they're at ease. They've got the life that I want. What good is it to follow God if? I remember this story about this young girl, and she was in this pastor's office, and she was really wrestling. She'd just broken up with her boyfriend, and I guess this was a meaningful relationship to her. And, you know, the pastor's doing the best he could to try to navigate her and, and to care for her. And he started talking about the love of God. And she said to him, God, you know, pastor, what good is it if God loves me if I don't have a boyfriend? What if? What good is it? What good is the love of God if I don't have the thing my heart really desires? And right now, Asaph is at this place. Do I really desire God? Or do I desire the things of the world? And as I look at how people are doing in the world, their life looks better than mine. Have you found yourself at that precipice of comparison? And it's a, it's a sheer cliff, listen. Because it'll drive you to workaholism. It'll drive you to try to attain and attain. But you're just killing your life. It'll destroy your marriage, destroy your relationships, destroy your concept of what joy and happiness is. Have you walked that precipice of life where the temporal things of this world were more important than the eternal things of God or the joy in this world and what this world could offer you is, is more real and tangible than God's presence and what he wants to give us. That's where Asaph is. And in this passage, he's honest enough to process it before God. You know, so often we're not honest with God. We're not honest before him in terms of what we're feeling, what we're experiencing. I don't know if we think he's going to strike us down because realize this passage is here. Psalm 73, it's, it's in the Bible. He's doubting God, and yet God includes it. He's questioning God's goodness. He's saying, I doubted that God was good, and yet so many of us come to church, and we're afraid to say what we really think. Now, sometimes that's because we're wise, right? And there are people around us who are not healthy. And if you don't know who those unhealthy people are, well, it, it could be us. Are we the kind of place where people can openly process their questions and thoughts? You know, often in churches, we're afraid of doubt. I don't know if we think we'll catch it, you know? If I really listen to this person, and sometimes, listen, here, here's the reality. Some of us are at that place in life, and, and I know this because I'm somebody that, and I'll get into this, I really wrestled with some issues, and I remember sometimes even talking to Melissa, and she just wasn't interested. That's my wife. She just wasn't interested. It was a place where I was wrestling, and, and in, almost in a sense, she's kind of like, listen, you know, she was caring for me, but she didn't want to hear those things. And that's okay. Sometimes we're at that place where we're just not ready to walk that path. But as a church, are we willing to allow people to question? Because the reality is that's a part of faith. And if we don't recognize that and become the kind of church that is strong enough in our faith in God to hold the questions of others, then we're really not following the Jesus or the God of Scripture. Because, see, God allows doubts in his presence. 
And what he says in verse 13, if you notice, as he's reflected on life, he comes to reflect on himself and he says, in vain, meaning in emptiness, I've kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence. My life has been a failure. Have you come to that place in life where in reflecting upon what you see, you think, man, I just wasted 20 years of my life. This is deeply intimate and personal. And and it's all about, he says in verse 13, I've kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands. All day long, I've been stricken. Verse 14, and I'm rebuked in the morning. He's got this challenge on his heart. And realize the challenge of doubt that he's dealing with is not intellectual. I don't know if you realize that at this point. Often we think doubts are in the mind. And certainly our mind plays a part, but the doubt that he has didn't come from reading a book. Wasn't watching YouTube and came across this argument he had never heard. No, he was simply observing life. And through the experiences of life, it started to challenge what he believed. His heart saw something that contradicted what his mind believes, and that's what doubt is. Often doubt happens through experiences. Heart doubt happens through emotion, through feelings, through It's not simply just through the intellect. When you think of doubt, doubt's like a lake. And it's not like one stream's going into doubt. It's not just all intellectual, because usually that's how we deal with it, right? Which means I gotta isolate myself. I'm gonna get the right book, study the right things, and then I'm gonna figure this thing out because we tend to think doubt is intellectual, but see, that's not what he's describing. He didn't have an argument hit him. He had an experience. He saw injustice. He saw suffering. He saw pain. He saw the prideful getting away with things in life, and it caused him to question the presence of God because, see, doubt doesn't just come from the intellect. It also comes through the streams of emotion. So here you have this lake, and there's all these streams and tributaries coming in, and some are relational. Sometimes we doubt because of what happens to the people around us, the friendships that we have, the experiences, the longings that are not met. And so here he has this experience, and he's not gonna just solve it by dealing with the mind. He's gotta deal with his heart, his emotion, his life, he's got to deal with his entire person in God's presence. Because as we deal with doubt, it's not just intellectual. It's complex. It's complex. And, And here's the second idea. Doubt is not just intellectual, but doubt is not necessarily bad. Because see, through this process, Asaph is growing. Now, I don't know if you probably know this about growth. Growth, growth is painful. Certainly, you begin a new workout routine, you start working on aspects of your body, and it hurts. And you feel the pain of growth, and growth in the Christian life in faith in God is often painful. And through this process, though it's uncomfortable, and it's hard, and it's difficult, God is at work in it, in a sense, revealing himself in a way that before his doubts, he had never encountered God. God was becoming more real, more near, and more dear. And and I think all of us probably have had those moments. I had this experience in my life. You know, I went to seminary right out of college, the worst time to go to seminary. You know why? You have no clue what you need to learn. They take these 18-year-olds, you know, guys like me, 21, and they give us a master of divinity. I mean, come on now. I've mastered divinity. I know Hebrew. I know Greek. I know transubstantiation, all these fancy words, I can throw them out there, right? So when I was younger, I'd use these big words to let you know I got a degree. And then as I was going through ministry, 
what I discovered later on is some of my friends, some of them actually that graduated with me and then a friend that came to faith with me in young life, lived down the street, they'd walked away from God. And that was a disorienting experience. And I wasn't quite sure what bothered me the most, so I, I reached out to him. I had a number of friends that, that had walked away, and so I reached out to him. I said, hey, what was going on? I said, well, I read this book. I was studying these thoughts, and I started getting into that, those thoughts. I started studying what they studied, reading what they had read, and I was anxious. Because, see, what I wanted to do is I wanted to control the situation. I wanted to convince them they're wrong. And so I threw my heart, my soul, and when I get passionate about something, it it takes over everything. There's no talking to me. There's no getting me off the hunt. I am going down that path. And it took over everything. It consumed me. And I felt as if I could say my foot had almost slipped. But it wasn't, it wasn't intellectual so much. It was fear. It was emotional. I wanted to control what they believed I wanted them to believe what I believed. And the fact that they didn't caused me to be afraid that this could also happen to me. My struggle wasn't about simply an idea. It, it was struggling with God. God, are you in control? And so I can identify with what Asaph is experiencing. And so I had to learn to process my doubts. So as we jump back into the passage, Asaph takes us through a process. And it's not a clinging process. It's not like you do step one and then you get to step two and three. It's something that you've got to constantly do. So let's jump back in as he walks us through this process. And it starts in verse three with deconstructing his doubts. He had to be skeptical, skeptical about his skepticism. And he described it this way. And he says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So the experience was... These guys are arrogant and wicked. They're living however they want. They're getting the life that I want. God, you cannot be good. But he realized his issue wasn't intellect. It was heart. It wasn't a matter of ideas. It was a matter of character. Notice he says, I was envious. I was jealous. God, I thought I got into this faith to get something from me. And it's not working out. The marriage isn't what I want. The money isn't what I want. My life isn't what I want. What good is it to trust you if I don't have a boyfriend? If my life isn't working, how would you fill in the blank? If my friends walk away from you, if my kids no longer trust you, what good is it believing in God that God is good if life doesn't turn out? And so he began to examine his heart. And let me say to you, this right here, it's not easy. And I'll tell you why. Asaph probably had a wife. You know what she was saying to him? You're jealous. No, I'm not. Sweetheart, I love you. I'm not envious. I don't want that. I trust in God. I believe that God is eternal. And he's my creator and he loves me and he's pursuing me. Often the things we struggle with most are the very things that we are blind to. And I imagine people saw it, right? Because you see it. You see it in others. And you tell them, hey, listen, I'm worried about you. I think there's bitterness in your life. I think there's jealousy. I think you're envious. And you're like, no, 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 no. That's not me. I, I, I don't. He probably heard it. But it wasn't 
until he experienced his sin that he could realize his sin. Do you understand that difference? Someone can tell you your sin, and you can deny it to their face. But when you experience your brokenness in the presence of God, you come to a place of humility and growth. Oh, my gosh. I am jealous. And that happened to me. When my friends lost their faith, I came to a place where I realized, I'm afraid. This isn't just about an argument. I want to control. I want to convince. And I got angry. When I had discussions with people, it wasn't civil. It it was World War III. And I was using arguments like knives. Not because I loved my friends. I loved myself. And I was using arguments to protect me. And you know who I was protecting myself from? From God. I was simply protecting myself from God because I was using these arguments not to admit to God, I'm I'm afraid. I'm out of control and I want to take control of my life. The first thing you have to do is you've got to start examining what am I really after? Is it really about injustice? I mean, do you really love the world that much that that's the issue? And it could be, but you also may be fooling yourself. Are you willing to stop and look at yourself and say, what's happening? What's going on? And, And listen, guys, That's where you have to learn this word, emotions. I know we don't want to talk about it. But if you're not emotionally healthy, then you will not understand what's going on in your life in this moment and what you're really after. And you will lie to yourself just like I did and say, that's not the situation. In the presence of God, he examined his heart and he saw what was there. We've got to deconstruct our doubts. And then second... He engages in healthy community. He, he re-engages with the church. Watch this, verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, meaning if he had just told everybody what he was experiencing, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought, verse 16, how to understand this, it seemed a worrisome task. So he was saying, I had doubts. I shouldn't broadcast those to everyone because there are people whose faith depends on me. You know what I mean? It's okay. If you don't want to wrestle with an argument, you don't have to. But don't reject someone else because they are. See, in the church, you don't have to enter into that space where you need to understand everything. You need to understand what God's teaching you in that moment. And he said, you know, if I had just broadcasted on Facebook, that would be the most unhealthy thing I could do. And so it was a wearisome task that he brought his doubts to the right people. And specifically in verse 17 until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. See, he saw things from an eternal perspective. He stopped looking at life and saying, God, this is what I see. He searched his heart, right? He saw the envy and he said, God, what do you see? Tell me how you see my friends. How do you see life? I don't want to engage them with anger and malice in my heart. I want to love them as you love them. Because the truth is, what transformed us is not an argument. Do you know that? God didn't send a watertight argument. He sent a watertight person. And it was in the encountering of Jesus as a person that God transformed us. And so we have to doubt our doubts, but then secondly, we have to engage. On the one hand, with community with God, but also community with others. When he says he went to the sanctuary, what he's referring to is worship came to church. A little more full and rich than that, but he went 
to the temple. He went and worshiped with the people, which means what happened when you went to the temple is you would actually sing the songs of ascent. Do you know this song 120? If you start reading that 120, 121, it's called the songs of ascent because you're ascending to where? To worship. And so as he's walking, right, you can imagine hundreds of people, pilgrims are worshiping alongside him and his heart is just raw. You know, maybe you're there today, you know, you're sitting there like, ah, oh, this is silly, this doesn't matter. What are these people singing about? And he is just in that place of arrogance and pride. But maybe he notices the genuine faith of some. And then he gets to the temple, and what does he find? Does he find an argument? No, he, he has an experience. There's people making sacrifices. There's sights and sounds. There's choirs. There's teaching. They actually had classrooms off the, long, the side of the temple where they would teach, and the rabbis would teach, and they would disciple. See, he took his doubts not just to an argument but to an experience. He, he began to engage. And what tends to happen, if you think doubts are intellectual and intellectual alone, what you'll do is you'll isolate. I got to go read a book. And hey, that's good. But why don't you read a book in community? Because often the guys that I've dealt with that have walked away, they walked away because they didn't engage. Well, I started doubting that this Jesus stuff. I started doubting my faith in God. I, well, what did you do? Well, I just, you know, I stopped going to church. Of course. Oh, okay. And then I stopped reading the Bible. I, I kind of pulled away from that, and I just immersed myself in one kind of community, a community of doubt. Well, see, that's not doubting doubts. That's just being driven by doubts. Instead, what Asaph did was like, listen, if this God thing is real, I'm going to take it to him, and I'm going to take it to God's people and have an open and honest conversation about what's going on. See, that's what the church should be. We should be a place where people can process those doubts together in God's presence. And he said, he realized as he deconstructed his life and as he went into healthy community, the next thing he did was he started to compare footholds. You see this in verse 18. He says, truly you set them, that means the wicked, in its slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Now if you notice, verse 18, if you compare it to verse two, it's a lot like verse two. Because see, who was slipping in the beginning? Asaph was. He was looking at his life from a temporal perspective. He was seeing that the people that were living in rebellion against God, they're getting the life that I want. His eyes were fixated on that. Then he turned his heart towards God and started to listen to God. God examined his heart, found what's underneath those questions, and he started to see things from God's perspective. And what he began to do was to question his foundation, but also to question the foundation of others. You see, in our world today, people will say to you, church, they'll say, listen, you guys live by faith. We live by reason. Have you heard that? And they'll compare Christianity with, okay, there's only one of two options. You either have faith or you have reason. Paul said, no, the opposite of faith is not reason, it's sight. What does that mean? Seeming appearance. How things appear to be. If Asaph lived by sight, he would have abandoned God. But see, faith is not the opposite of reason. And see, it's not as if we have beliefs and others don't, and there's belief and unbelief. No, when you question a belief, it's always from a position of belief. What Asaph is doing, he's looking at his foundation and what he believes, but that's not enough to examine. He also has to examine the alternative. That sometimes people will come to you and say, you know, I can't trust in Jesus because of the exclusivity of Christ. You guys claim this is the only way to God. And you may discover, well, what do you think? And they'll say things like, well, I, I think all religions have some truth. And all of them are capturing different ideas of God. And there's this argument that God's like an elephant, but 
Christians, we got the trunk, right? And somebody's got the tail and I don't know, somebody's got the sides or whatever it is and each religion has this truth. And they're saying, well, I believe in this, I'm open-minded. But the reality is when someone makes that argument, what they're saying is, hey, listen, you can't claim to have the truth because no one person can know everything about God and yet they're making the exact same claim by claiming that every, no one can know. Does that make sense? They're saying no one can know the full truth, but we know that no one can know the full truth. It's the same argument. Now, that doesn't solve the problem, but it causes you to realize the foundation I'm on and the foundation on you on are both based on facts and ideas, and both of us are taking a step of faith. And what Asaph is doing is he's listening to his doubts, but he's questioning them. He's asking, and in this time, we have to learn to ask good questions. Not, not to get arrogant and defensive, but to simply say, well, what are, what are you saying? What is that guy in NPR really saying? Does he know anything about this? Are we examining? And then we have to look at the foundation they're standing on, the foundation we're standing on, that we're all walking in a sense by faith. We're all taking steps based on reason and truth, and in a sense, taking a step of faith into what we believe. Asaph looked into his heart. He questioned his doubt. He looked at his foundations. Then he looked at the foundation of the world. And then finally, we'll close with this. He had to experience the grace of God anew. He had to, again, experience God's grace in his life. So look how this passage ends. Verse 21. And he's reflecting on his life. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was ignorant before you. I was like a beast. But nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Your right hand, it, it upholds me. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me into glory. And then notice this language. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing. Remember the wicked and what they had? Has nothing I desire besides you. His envy has gone from material to eternal. It's good to be jealous for God. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart. Not my money, not my wealth, not my beauty, not my success. God, you are my portion forever. In God's presence, Realize, he realized God's worth. And he recognized, even though I've been questioning you, you didn't abandon me. I was like a brute beast. I questioned you, God, and yet, in turning to you, you were still there for me. Now, what did that look like? Was it simply an experience? I'm not sure. It could have been the teaching at the temple. It could have been the worship, it could have been the gathering, it could have been God's presence, but God made Asaph awake to who he is. Church, we have to both wrestle with the truths that we deal with this in, in this world, but we have to bring them into the presence and into the character of God. And listen, in community with others who can help us. If you're struggling through doubt, we want this to be a safe place. Because I don't know if you realize this, you're not alone. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane said, God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Jesus traveled through the pathway of doubt and he leaned not on his own understanding, but in all his ways, he acknowledged him. And see, through his doubt, meaning through his place of abandonment, God has rescued us. So what we have to do is sometimes I've got to take my doubts and as Jesus is kneeling in the garden, questioning God, I've got to bring my doubts right alongside him. And realize, Jesus, you've traveled this path before. And I know how the story ends. 
and I'm going to lean my doubts, not on my understanding, but on yours, and I'm going to hold on to the one who went to the cross and was resurrected for me. Let me pray for us. Father, to ask in Jesus' name that you would teach us the truth, and we would even ask this question today as we leave, whom have I in heaven but you? Father, what on earth do we desire besides you? What if our heart and our flesh would fail? What if our life would pass in this moment? What is of eternal weight? What matters? You are our treasure and you are our portion forever. Father, help us to be honest as we process the doubts that we experience and go through a world honestly that sometimes it can seem as if our feet and our foothold is slipping. And Father, I'd pray for the person here today that's never really trusted in you and not stood on the foundation of Christ and Christ alone and say, Father, accept me through faith in what Jesus has done. I want to trust that through his life and his death and his resurrection, I have eternal life, that I am with the Father. Holy Spirit, would you convict us and would you move us to that place of faith to be honest with you? And Father, because of that, we are deep and rich and honest with each other. We love you in Jesus' name.